Wherever you find a free seat, please. Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome. Uh, I'm Steve Morrison. I'm a senior vice president here at CSIS, and I direct our global health work. And we're really delighted to be able to have this roundtable this morning as part of the Washington Humanitarian Forum focused on Ebola and DRC. And we have an extraordinary uh, panel uh, here whom, whom I will introduce um, momentarily. Um, we also published on this occasion, or just prior to this occasion, twinned with the forum, a commentary that I drafted, which is available online, um, uh, which uh, you may have, you may want to access that. I want to offer special thanks to my colleague, Samantha Stroman, who has helped me um, over the past uh, couple of weeks put, put this together. So special thanks to um, Samantha. Uh, I'm going to offer a few opening remarks. Uh, this is uh, meant to be a, um, a very interactive um, uh, uh, conversation, informal, uh, back and forth, not set piece presentations, and that's how we're going to do it. And we're going to leave some space for, to hear from you. Uh, we've got an hour and a half of time. That's less than may seem uh, at first glance, but we'll, we'll move, move forward. Uh, rapidly to try and uh, get at least 30 minutes, uh, if not more, for interaction with the audience. Um, uh, before I deliver my opening remarks, let me just quickly introduce our speakers. We have Tim Ziemer with us. Um, uh, Tim is a, a retired admiral. The Navy uh, 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 ran the, uh, was the founding director of the President's Malaria Initiative, did that for full 10 and a half years, starting in the um, uh, 2006 in the administration of George uh, uh, Bush and uh, continuing into the administration of President Obama, served as senior director at the White House on, on global health security, uh, and is currently the senior deputy admi assistant administrator at USAID at the Bureau for Democracy, Conflict, and Humanitarian Assistance. Um, and as we'll hear in a few minutes, um, you know, Tim has been deeply engaged for months on uh, the response, the DRC, the response to the Ebola outbreak in DRC. We had a, a gathering here a few months back, uh, uh, which involved a sort of live communication at that time with the WHO, with Tim here, with CDC here, uh, and uh, it, was, it was quite gripping and, 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 at, at that moment. Um, and, and, and at that time, I think we were all struggling uh, with the same, many of the same tortured questions that we're going to address today, uh, which is what, what do we not know and how do we, uh, how do we think about these barriers that are so, in some ways, fraught and formidable. So uh, Tim has just returned um, from uh, the uh, mission, the delegation to the DRC led by um, Secretary Azar. Uh, which included Tim, included two staff from the White House, included Tony Fauci, included Dr. Redfield, um, CDC, among others. So we'll hear, I, I did want to use this occasion to hear a little bit 
from Tim on his own personal reflections. Uh, Secretary Azar has not had an opportunity yet to issue a public statement or, or a press debrief around the trip, but t Tim has kindly agreed to help us on that. Um, uh, uh, we're also joined by Ella Watson Stryker, who's generously agreed to come down from New York today um, to be with us. She is the humanitarian representative uh, in the United States for MSF, um, and, um, and that's a, a big job that involves the uh, interface with the U.S. government, with Congress and administration, and non-governmental entities across the spectrum of the, of the most important cases. I think she told me that she has somewhere on the order of 50, 50 people that she has to report to or pay attention to, uh, operation directors uh, in various crisis zones that come to her asking to deliver these talking points or ask these questions of interlocutors here um, in, the, uh, in the United States. Uh, she's been with MSF since 2014. I might note that when the Time Magazine uh, made the person of the year in 2014, uh, four uh, of those uh, 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 who made uh, enormous contributions in the field in the battle of, against the uh, Ebola outbreak in uh, West Africa, Ella was among those four. And uh, congratulations. Um, and um, she's uh, worked extensively. I won't go into all of the multitude of, um, of countries that she has worked in. She's a graduate of Columbia School of International and Public Affairs. And, and, and Rutgers. Um, the, um, uh, our, 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 third, uh, our third speaker is Jeremy Kondike, known to, to many, if not all of you, senior fellow at the Center for Global Development, uh, a, a constant presence in the period of the Obama administration, 2013 to 2017, where he directed USAID's office, U.S. Foreign Disaster Assistance, uh, which, of course, played a vitally important central role in the Ebola outbreak of West Africa, but pulled in a multitude of other, uh, both natural disasters, but also um, uh, complex emergencies in Ethiopia, northern Nigeria, Nepal, Iraq. Uh, previously had, had done similar work uh, in the nonprofit world uh, at Mercy Corps, uh, and um, uh, important in, the, in our conversation today, uh, he has uh, served on the WHO, serves on the WHO Independent Oversight and Advisory Committee, uh, and, and most recently was pulled in uh, through the Global Pandemic Monitoring Board to be part of a small team that went into uh, DRC just recently to do an analysis. It's just been published, as I understand, just been pu published last night or this morning. So this is great timing. Uh, he also published through CGD um, an extensive uh, retrospective look at the Ebola West Africa experience, uh, which is a remarkable and powerful uh, piece of analytic work. Um, and, um, uh, uh, and some of the issues that we're struggling with here today are directly relevant to that. So let me offer a few uh, remarks, and then we're going to enter our um, conversation. Our conversation is going to begin with a discussion around what are the, the, the lead barriers as we see them? Because um, the, the, that question is one that grips all of our speakers. And then talk about questions of which of these are actually uh, 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 barriers that lend themselves to solutions or a partial or complete solutions. And what do you do when you actually face a series of barriers for which there is no solution? 
and, um, and what's your strategy then? Um, so uh, a few things. The task force, the CSIS Humanitarian Task Force, you know, defined barriers in a multitude of way, ways. It talks about security, it talks about administrative barriers, it talks about political choice, it talks about clashes of doctrine, the confrontation between counterterror um, law, doctrine, policy, uh, as against international humanitarian law. Uh, choices that are externally imposed, financial barriers, financial restrictions. So it's a very broad concept. Um, the recommendations are talking about elevating access to be a top foreign policy priority. It's talking about rebalancing considerations of humanitarian access as against security. Uh, a big focus on data, big focus on building local capacity and training. I would argue all of those things are relevant to our conversation here today, fitted to the realities of what we're going to talk to. Um, there's, as I was thinking about preparing for this and reading over some of the notes that had been thinking about what Jeremy had written, uh, reading over some of the notes that Ella shared with me, uh, some of the conversations that we've had with Tim and others, it seems to me there are two very pronounced perspectives that have emerged around these access issues. One, I would say, is a sort of public health, epidemiological, virus-focused perspective, and another is more of a sociological uh, perspective, one that puts more of a lens upon the developmental environment, the humanitarian emergency environment, puts the individual and the community at the center of the discussion. Um, so on that first, public health, we're, that, that's where you're talking about in order to arrest this outbreak, you, certain public health interventions have to happen. There has to be surveillance, there has to be rapid screening and testing, there has to be a closure of the gap, there needs to be isolation, there has to be data integration between who's getting vaccinated, who's getting screened, um, there has to be infection control at facilities, speed of separation in the, and getting isolated and into treatment. There has to be safe burials. Um, there has to, so all of these things, uh, and now we have a technological set of parts to this that we did not have in previous to, to the same degree in terms of vaccines, and now therapies that are curative have to be introduced into the mix. We know the insecurity the attacks by the Allied Democratic Forces, the, the routine uh, locally-based Mai Mai uh, uh, insecurity has created uh, chaos and has in some ways insulated and protected the virus and made those critical interventions very difficult to get to. We also know, and we can talk a bit more, this has caused um, uh, blockage on being able to deploy our uh, I think, as you called it, Tim, the thoroughbreds of the CDC and AID domain, those that have the greatest experience in fighting Ebola's. So those, those teams have been, have been restricted, that we've paid a price. There's very real security concerns that come into play here. This, we've tried to argue that um, the, uh, uh, the local insecurity is also linked in with corruption, it's linked in with the Ebola economy, it's linked in with illicit networks, material incentives that drive insecurity and the like. The sociological model, which is more patient and community focused, um, is really, really centers on what does it need for trust, for trust and faith and, 
and accurate knowledge around what's going on. And there you, we drift into the domain where there's a lot of discussion around uh, 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 disinformation, paranoia, conspiracy theories, um, deliberate political opportunism coming in in order to do that. We get into a lot of discussion around history, around the legacy of abuse and trauma, um, and, um, and there's a lot of discussion around how do you go about doing these public health interventions in a way that is seen as being respectful of the individual in the community, but also one that's understood as accurately versus being seen as some sort of uh, plot against those communities or something that is punishing and abusing those communities. Um, both of these models, I would argue, are essential to any discussion around what is happening and what can be done. These are not, I don't think, necessarily antagonistic. Uh, those who are strong proponents will, 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 will try to make sure that there's adequate balance and integration across those. There's a couple of other things that come into, into play here that I just want to flag before we start our discussion. One is, it's really important to be considering how big and, how big and advanced is this outbreak. This outbreak's been going on for almost 18 months if you calibrate back to April of, of last year. Um, we've crossed the threshold, 3,100 cases, almost 2,100 fatalities. Uh, we know from Jeremy's analysis and others that scale really does matter here on choices. Scale drives strategy. Scale drives choices. And we'll hear more about that. Um, we know that protection of the integrity and safety of institutions and personnel in this environment has surged forward as a top line priority. It's not just CDC and, and AID that are worried about this. It's MSF that had two of its premier facilities violently trashed that had to really question its own, and we can hear more from Ella, the integrity, the safety of their own personnel, their own place in the, in the, in, in the, in the environment can, comes into question. This is out, outbreak does differ in some important respects in the level of danger and corruption and how broken the state governments is. It differs in, to the degree of the opacity, just how opaque the environment is in terms of the operation of networks. Who are these people? What do they want? Why are they operating in this violent and coercive fashion? I think there's an exceptional level of data, data problems in this environment, and we now have debate around, is this a virus, is this outbreak evolving into something that looks endemic for the first time ever? And that's an unresolved debate, but it's been tabled. Um, I mentioned earlier, we have new technologies in the mix in terms of vaccines, curative therapies. We're late. Uh, last point, money matters, but it, money is probably, and I think we'll hear from our speakers, money in the current environment may not be as decisive as we think, but certainly there's a paucity of money and, and budgets are extremely tight and, you, and we, it's not like we have a lot of, of leeway in the system financially to begin pivoting if, if a pivot is required. So money is problematic, uh, money matters, but um, I think in the current situation, as we'll hear from Tim and others, 
uh, it may be on a second order problem as we, as we see it against others, others. So thank you for indulging me. I'm gonna turn to Tim to kick things off. The big question we wanna first address is, okay, what do you see as the top line barriers before we talk about, okay, what can be done about them? But I've also asked Tim, give us a little bit more on this delegation, which is terribly important and, um, and, and uh, to be commended and very difficult ambitious trip, as, we, as we'll hear. Thank you, Tim, for being with us. Thanks, Steve, <clears throat> and also to CSIS for hosting this. I really appreciate uh, your leadership in that arena, uh, and also your article and your editorial. It was very comprehensive. I agreed with most of it. There are a few things I would have uh, uh, redirected you, but we can talk about that. <clears throat> I'll, be, I'll be looking forward yeah. to that. It's good to uh, join uh, the panel with Ella. Uh, your folks are thoroughbreds too. I just want you to know that. And uh, Jeremy, it's good to work with you for a few minutes here. <clears throat> uh, Steve asked me to just highlight a few things about the trip, what we saw, and the remaining challenges. <clears throat> it was a great trip. Whenever you get the Secretary of Health and Human Services, Secretary Azar, with Tony Fauci, with Dr. Redfield, I was uh, privileged to join along with members of the NSC that is pretty comprehensive in making a statement that, uh, that uh, the U.S. government's political leadership is engaged. It considers this outbreak, but more broadly, global health security, a significant national security priority. And uh, it is important that we all work together to bring this to an end. <clears throat> the last day of the trip was pretty challenging. Uh, we had one airplane break. We celebrated because we uh, were rescheduled. We got on that to Brussels and the next airplane broke. So uh, we lost our bags when we got to Dulles and I put my notes together and this morning I went in to finalize a few high-level notes and my computer was down because my password had expired and I still haven't figured <laughs> out how to do that at USAID. Is just simply change passwords. So I'm here. To, I feel like a stunned owl. I'm happy to be here. And let me make some high-level notes, and then we can uh, press ahead. <clears throat> These are my personal thoughts. I don't speak for Secretary Azar, nor Tony Fauci, or Dr. Redfield, who was in fact diverted to go into Tanzania uh, from this trip. So we'll be hearing from both of them, I'm sure, as they uh, express their uh, thoughts for the future. Here's my personal assessment. Uh, the U.S. Is, is committed. We manifest it and express it in different ways, perhaps uh, from some of your expectations and what you'd like to hear and how that is communicated. But I can tell you right up front, from uh, the White House to Secretary Pompeo to Administrator Green to Azar and Redfield, they get daily briefs on what's going on with this DRC outbreak. <clears throat> um, couple thoughts. We have not turned the corner. We've been in this for a year plus. We're going to be in it for a long haul. So as you think about thoroughbreds in a Kentucky Derby race, uh, we got to be thinking about a long marathon, maybe a bunch of oxen hooked up to a yoke plodding through the field in order to cross the finish line wherever and whenever that might be. But we absolutely are committed to crossing that finish line. The risk for this spreading across the borders is real. 
And so preparedness remains a critical component of what we're doing. Here's the other thing that I really saw. People are working really, really hard. The WHO team, some of the government uh, medical teams that are engaged, our, uh, our partners are working this 24 hours a day. And as a guy who used to run things and engage operationally, I noted a bit of burnout. So as we factor in challenges, we've got to look at length, who these critical responders are. We've got to love them and take care of them and give them what they need. But we've got to factor that in as a component of successfully crossing the uh, crossing line. The other thing is we can't solve this from Washington, even though we got a lot of smart people here. You write great articles. Uh, we can't solve it from Atlanta. We can't solve it from New York nor London. Okay, it's the collective leverage of all of us working through the government and WHO and the partners to cross the finish line. And uh, most of what we hear in Washington these days is stuff we already know. And so, as Steve mentioned, we've got to look at the challenges as they exist and take them one by one, unpack them, and then figure out how we're going to navigate puzzle piece by puzzle piece and uh, move forward. First of all, we visited DRC. Uh, we were joined by Minister Tedros. He thought it was significant enough for him to make another trip all the way down to Kinshasa. Uh, one of the heroes in this whole response is Ambassador Hammer, who's leading the U.S. response, and his team, the CDC team and the DART team, and where he has rolled that into a one U.S. government response team. We met with President Chichiketi, Dr. Mwembe. Many of you who are in the technical world know him. Uh, he's a world-renowned scientist. He has been designated the Ebola lead for President Chichiketi. The other bit of uh, good news was uh, we met with the new Minister of Health, Dr. Nteni uh, Lungundo. Uh, many of you probably don't know him. I didn't. He did used to work for PMI. So he's, he knows the international community. He knows the uh, opportunity and the, uh, the need to leverage international along with local uh, partners. We also met with the uh, uh, with Lila Zergoi. Uh, she is the uh, uh, Secretary General's UN rep there, who's coordinating the largest UN MONISCO response globally. And the highlight, of course, was spending time with David Gressley, who Steve had here. David is a key filter to try to understand the community coordination and also the changing security environment. Multiple partners that uh, we meet with. Uh, uh, we went from Kinshasa to Goma. How many of you have been to Goma and up to Butembo? Butembo as well? Okay, hands go down. Getting into Butembo is a little bit more challenging. Um, what we saw this time was that the ETU that we saw was well organized. It was uh, processing adults, kids, and we saw a three-week uh, old infant whose mother had passed away. So they're dealing with the full spectrum of age uh, in the uh, ETU. People are being treated very well. The process was sound. People are leaving the ETU healthy. We saw a little eight-year-old who got a certificate that said, I'm a survivor, and this certificate means I'm okay to go. There's no stigma attached. 
We also talked to a young woman who also was a survivor, and she has now joined the community outreach component and not only expressing but celebrating the fact that after coming to the ETU, she was cured using one of these three, thera uh, there are two therapeutics being tested in four ETUs. And she stood up and encouraged people to come early because the viral load early is uh, gonna make those therapeutics more successful. So engaging with the community was a little bit of an uptick instead of complaining and, and communicating a larger challenge that we all understood, this community interaction gave me a glimmer, glimmer of hope that perhaps the engagement on the community side was perhaps changing a tad bit, and that's significant. Vaccinations are going up, as if you track that, over 220,000 vaccinations of the Merck vaccine have been administered, we got to keep leaning forward. So uh, uh, I left a bit more positive than my previous trip. The engagement by UNICEF with the communities was also a positive. And I've been pretty hard on UNICEF, and if anybody here from UNICEF is here, I'm sorry, but you're, the two folks that they have in country right now are really pivoting and, and adjusting and being a little bit more agile to the circumstances. We went on to Veron, uh, uh, Rwanda and saw the ambassador there, met with Minister uh, Gashumba uh, and President Kangami. If you've been to Rwanda, great place, everything's in order. I would say we're hopeful that the preparedness is what it needs to be, but I don't have the confidence that we felt when we were in, in uh, Uganda. Uh, ambassador Jimmy Coker, the groundwork that you laid when you were the ambassador has, has uh, bared fruit. Okay. Uh, ambassador Deb Malik, uh, Minister of Health, uh, Jean Chang, if you know her, she's a rock star. I'd follow her anywhere. President Museve was personally engaged. He, he provided us more details and the need for the people in the community to engage and how important it was for the government to be active, the military to be active, and the community to be part of the solution. Uh, we visited the labs. There's no doubt in my mind that when the, a case breaks out again in Uganda, they have the plan, the capacity to respond quickly. I left, the delegation left Uganda thinking that uh, that was kind of the bright spot in the region at the moment. So what's changed from my first visit? Uh, again, you might have sensed a glimmer of hope. That's, that's uh, genuine. I feel a little better this time than last time. No silver bullets. I can't point to one thing and say, ah, oh, let's chase this uh, rabbit trail and that'll take us uh, forward. But there was better organization, better communication, and it gave me a little more hope. There is a new D uh, government, DRC. President Chichiketi, new Minister of Health, and Dr. Muembe, they are working together. Uh, we are embedding CDC folks in those teams, and uh, we expect, with the new leadership, a different reaction from the Ministry of Health. Check. Uh, we now have the new strategic plan, okay? If you recall, that has just been signed last week by the government of DRC, yippee. Just because you have a flight plan doesn't mean you're gonna get off the ground. You've gotta actually have a plan. The plan is costed. We now know the cost of this 
for the donors is going to be about $500 million. And some of that's already been upfronted by the UN, which reduced the cost down to $450 million. The fact that we have these figures, something we didn't have six months ago. And the World Bank, if any World Bank folks are here, you get a gold star too, because the bank has stepped up and committed a significant chunk of change as well. That's a plus. David Gressley is on scene and working hard and traveling in the hotspot uh, routinely, trying to understand not only the community, but the security environment. OCHA is there. OCHA needs a little more push to get the capacity up to what it needs to be to help Gressley and the government coordinate this strategic plan. Payment of health workers, it was non-existent. It was a mystery when we were there. The bank has gone in, done an assessment, and now has hired Ernest Young as a contractor to be responsible for uh, moving money to the right beneficiaries and using biometrics to make sure the right person is getting paid. How's it going to work? A little bright spot. That's a whole lot better than what we had when we were seeing cash go in, but we weren't seeing it end up in the right hands. Check. Another positive indicator. More vaccines, therapeutics. Overall, in coordination is improving, but it's not what it needs to be, okay? Uh, a lot of lip service to engaging with the NGOs and other partners, and I would still say we haven't bridged the gap. And you can talk about this, uh, Al, if you wish, but we need to do a better job bringing in the other partners along with the government and WHO so that we're all on the same page. Uh, I'm not going to reiterate what uh, Steve did on the improvement in the health response on the contact tracing and, and all that. We know that. I'm told by the experts that if we don't get a 72% threshold uh, on contact tracing and all of that stuff, you're not going to spin the caseload down. It's just going to remain constant. That's where we are right now. So we are going to have to continue to work with CDC and the experts on what it's going to take to move those uh, health uh, indicators in the right direction. Um, so looking forward, next steps, let me just summarize. We've got to operationalize the strategic plan. Okay? We have a plan, so what? We've got to now unpack each component of it and look at how it links in to the dollars requested, to the partner engaged, to make sure that it's coordinated. Right now, we need an incident management center. Now, the real question is, where do you put that? Sorry. Where do you put that? Is it in Kinshasa, is it in Goma, or is it in Butembo? I don't care, as long as there is coordination that brings in all of the players on a daily basis to look at the data and make the, the decisions every morning to do whatever needs to be done. Um, that's number one. Better engagement with the NGOs and partners I've mentioned. Uh, setting up an official incident center, that's what I've uh, just talked about. Expanding the use of the Merck vaccine. Expanding the use of therapeutics and make sure people understand that when they go into ETU, it's not to die, that they can actually leave cured. Community engagement, to me, remains the number one challenge. To get the government and the community to own this, not the U.S. or the outsiders. 
The funding, I'm not real concerned about raising the funding. We now have a, uh, a target, the bank, the, uh, the UK, the US has stepped up to the plate. Uh, we need many of our traditional partners to become more liberal. The State Department has sent out a uh, message, uh, Demarche, to many of our partners, encouraging them to step up to the plate. We need that. Changing the approach to security. Uh, we've got to listen carefully to David. We, we don't have a security problem at large. We have multiple little security uh, challenges in different villages, different communities, and different towns. And if we have one up here, we can't shut down the operations here. So we have got to tailor and understand the security problem and then make adjustments. So the three vectors that, that we were worried about a year ago remain. The Ebola virus is there. It's constant. It's going to continue to wreak havoc in the region. We know how to fix it, but we've got to engage the community and change that engagement differently to get them to own and help, and we've got to continue to work on the security challenge. It's not one-off. It's all three coming together. That was uh, evident to me again. I hope that's not too much. Thank you so much. That's uh, um, very... I'm delighted that you are willing to share with us so much of that. Let's move to Ella. Uh, to, Ella, tell us how you're seeing this environment in terms of the barriers to access and where we are at this particular moment in time. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for organizing this panel. Uh, one of the, the biggest uh, issues that we see, and I don't think it will come as a surprise, that Médecins Sans Frontières is really calling for more principled humanitarian space. Uh, this outbreak is taking place in a conflict zone, that's true, but we've dealt with this exact conflict area many times before for different outbreaks. Maybe not Ebola, but we've certainly been there for measles, for cholera, for a lot of other things. What's different is our response to it and the level of brutality and uh, the presence of armed enforcement of the, the Ebola response, and that the community finds unacceptable. And we have to be, when we're talking about security, we have to be very cognizant of that fact that the reason we, MSF, and other humanitarian actors have been able to engage and work in conflict zones in the past is because we really rely on our core of principles. We have to work in a way that's independent, that's impartial, and that really respects the medical ethics and, and the rights of our patients. And that becomes a very difficult process when the leader of the response, the government, is actually a party to the conflict. And that, for us, is a very big challenge, and we've really struggled to navigate that space. Uh, as a medical actor, we've felt sidelined at times, and that the technical medical voice was not being heard and not being respected. And we've also felt that the humanitarian space was limited uh, by the response itself. So that, that's been the key challenge in the way we are framing this. Um, I'm hearing some, some optimism from my colleagues who are in Goma and Beni uh, that there are some new actors in place and, and maybe there's more space uh, for us as a medical humanitarian actor. Thank you. Thank you very much. Jeremy. Thanks. Um, 
So just to be explicitly clear, though I am on the independent oversight panel, I'm not speaking on behalf of the committee. I'm here, I'm speaking solely in the personal capacity. Um, so, I, you know, I, I think the, the point that Ella just made about the security is, is really important and it gets to one of the core challenges with this outbreak, which is that um, you have sort of this tension between the, the security tactics that humanitarians would normally apply in this sort of, do apply otherwise in this sort of an environment in Eastern Congo, which is based on negotiating access, gaining consent, gaining acceptance from the community. Um, and that is the, the sort of standard approach to humanitarian operational security in a politically violently contested space. And, the, and it, you know, it's hard, but it generally works um, if you invest the time. The problem is you have to invest the time. And Ebola is a disease that punishes delay. And um, so the, the um, report that our committee just put out for the Global Preparedness Monitoring Board uh, talks about this issue. And the, you know, the, the, the difficulty, I think, not just on security, but on many aspects of this response has been it started as a sprint and has turned into a marathon. And that's a very difficult thing to sustain. And it, you, you, you approach a sprint differently than you approach a marathon, and that's true on security. And so on security, you know, what we saw during our delegations visit was, um, uh, and what we, you know, what, we, what we heard was an approach to security that was very focused on just getting a full and robust uh, package of interventions into communities ASAP to try and lock down this disease without necessarily uh, stopping first to build the acceptance and build the consent. And from an epidemiological perspective, that is, you know, there, there is a defense for that. And, and you know, Steve, you talked in your remarks about the, the sociocultural perspective versus the epidemiological perspective. Well, from the epidemiological perspective, you just have to do these things. You have to get uh, these different components of the response in place in order to control the outbreak. And what I think, um, what I think the response writ large has really struggled with is understanding and navigating those trade-offs between the sociocultural approach and the kind of classical epidemiological or public health approach. And security is just a perfect example of that mm -hmm. in that, <clears throat> yes, if you need to roll out a big suite of interventions that's going to be led by a government-faced operation in areas that are hostile to the government, you're gonna need armed security to protect that, and they have needed that. Um, and the problem with doing it that way is that then has real trade-offs in terms of the degree of community acceptance. And I think that's what we're seeing. Some communities have accepted that quite well, and we did hear from certain community leaders that they, they wanted more security. Uh, but we also heard um, some different perspectives. We heard you know, some communities were simply hostile to any government security forces and didn't want them nearby. And then there was a really interesting group, which I suspect represents a lot of the people in Eastern Congo, who said, in effect, why for Ebola? Uh, we met with a large group of civil society leaders, uh, and the kind of the most striking moment during that, that hours-long consultation with about 200 people in the room, uh, a gentleman stood up and said, look, you know, we were here, we were getting slaughtered during the war, and we never saw Minusco, and we never saw the DRC security forces. No one protected us then. No one cared about us then. Why suddenly do you care about us now? It's a very hard, I didn't have a good answer to that. Um, it's a very hard thing to explain. You can understand why that frustration and why that pushback from the community, why that suspicion from the communities exists against that backdrop. And so 
you know, I, think, I don't think any of this is insurmountable, but I think it does take, um, you know, it does take a, a kind of reset of the response from the, the sprint that was tried at first and which has worked in a lot of other outbreaks um, to the marathon that this now is. And um, moving from sprint to marathon means uh, you're adapting the, the strategy, you're adapting the security approach. It means sometimes not doing things as quickly as you might like if slowing them down a bit makes them more accepted by the community. That will cost you in the short run, but benefit in the long run. <clears throat> um, I think the last thing I'd say, since this is the, the humanitarian forum, um, and we, we say this as well in the committee's report to the GPMB, there is still a big problem with how the humanitarian professional community and the public health professional community interact um, culturally, uh, operationally, and particularly in terms of leadership. So it really is one of the things that's really striking both about the 2014-15 outbreak and the current outbreak is in both of those outbreaks, it got to a point where the leadership of the overall operation was taken away from, uh, or kind of broadened beyond, I wouldn't say taken away, but broadened beyond being simply a public health operation and becoming a more comprehensive humanitarian, political, uh, civil military, et cetera, et cetera, operation. So a much larger disaster, comprehensive disaster crisis response. And in both instances, that was done late and reactively. Um, so, you know, the appointment of David Gressley is, I totally agree with Tim, it's a great step. Um, and David knows these issues very well. He's worked in Congo for a long time. He's been around humanitarians for a long time. Um, but that could have been done and probably should have been done months earlier. And it was only done reactively once some of the problems became so obvious that they couldn't be ignored and they you know, rose to the level of the Secretary General. So there is a need in future outbreaks that have the potential for major spread to, to be much more proactive about adaptive leadership and adaptive management and think right at the beginning, okay, and, and you know, just to throw some numbers out there, okay, at 50K, if we go beyond 50 cases, it's time for a strategic reevaluation to make sure we still have the posture we need. If we go beyond 500 cases, we're gonna do that again. If we go beyond 1,000 cases, we're gonna do that again. Um, rather than wait till, I think by the time David was appointed, it was over 2,000 cases. Um, Building in some of that intentional kind of benchmarks for intentional adaptation is really important for future outbreaks. I'll stop there. Thank you very much. Um, I'm going to play uh, devil's advocate a little bit here. The, um, um, I acknowledge all of these positive things that, that we've talked about and am and, and, and very encouraged by that. And, um, and the U.S. leadership stepping forward in the way that you've begun to describe it, Tim, is enormously important. Where I get hung up is I don't see a, a pathway or a vision for getting out of the insecurity and chaos that's pervasive. Um, I simply don't see that. I don't see any strategy that says we're going to crack the code on all of these local thug my my militias or crack code on the ADF who both operate with impunity 18 months into this with 21,000 blue helmets on the margins doing I'm not sure what and the maybe providing security for delivery of services but certainly not correcting the local security environment or pushing back the ADF more than temporarily. So we're 18 months into this, 
We've got a, the largest global peacekeeping deployment in the globe in this vicinity. We have a specialized unit, the FIB, that was deployed against the, what, the M13, M23, the, five or six years ago, put them out of business uh, very effectively. We have not seen anything like that happen in this instance. Um, uh, first point, so we don't have a strategy yet that's clear. I haven't read the strategic plan, but I, don't, I haven't heard anything in terms of this is what the security strategy is going to look like. And as against, you know, who's, who's actually going to do this? Um, I do know that uh, the head of peacekeeping, Jean-Pierre Lacroix, was there recently, which is good news, uh, with Dr. Tedros and with, um, I think, Henrietta was there, uh, head of UNICEF. Um, so that's one point. The second point is, you know, do we need to prepare for failure? Do we need, to, is this a situation that's simply not going to permit a, uh, the sort of uh, delivery of, of, the, of the critical interventions and community-based uh, engagements that are required because of the security problems and, and chaos? So what would that mean? What are we, are we looking at, and, and when would we declare, when would we know, right? I mean, are we, we're at 3,100 and 2,100 uh, cases and fatalities. So when do we make a, what do we set as a benchmark for saying, uh, you know, when, when we hit 5,000 or when we hit 10, what is it that begins? It's, this is a slow burn. It's not galloping forward in terms of the, we're not ex seeing exponential growth in caseloads. We're seeing some, some uh, dips that are promising, but being warned that most of that is not uh, long term. But basically, it's a continued slow burn uh, where these numbers are creeping up. Um, so what, are we going to set some benchmarks? And are we looking at a, a, the, a de facto endemic outbreak and a, and a drive where we're going to have to drive in our strategy and in our security to something that's really around the margins in terms of containment. Um, you could make the case that the adjustments that have happened by many of the actors are, are, are de facto that sort of adjustment already towards a more defensive, a more containment sort of strategy. So I just put that out there as a as a as a as a. As a, as a possibility to sort of get your thoughts. Ella, what would you think? Um, the, how would you respond to this notion that these barriers, these fundamental barriers, are simply not going to get fixed in the near term? So I'm working for a medical humanitarian organization, and we're not trying to solve security problems. We're trying to treat patients. And the way that we work in these climates is through careful negotiation with as many partners as possible with careful negotiation with all sides to the conflict, with community leaders, very broad spectrum of community leaders. And we focus on treating our patients. We think that in this outbreak, we focused on treating a virus. We need to focus on the people. And the reality is when you treat patients, when you treat their families, when you treat their community, that's how you gain acceptance. We can't just talk about, being, about asking people to trust us. We have to be trustworthy. We have to deliver the things that they deserve, that they have a right to have, like quality medical care. And 
the other aspects of that insecurity, it's not what we're going to try to solve, and it's not what we're going to solve in this outbreak, and I don't think it's a precondition to ending the outbreak. I think if we can deliver good quality medical care, if we can engage communities in an appropriate way, if we listen and respond to their requests, if they are equal partners and collaborators in this response, this outbreak is primarily affecting the Nande people. This is a very organized ethnic group. They have very specific political demands. They have felt marginalized for years and years and years. And they have a saying, which is, if you're not working with us, you're working against us. We need to listen to that. We need to change our approach so that we are working with them because they have the capacity to solve this outbreak. And on the question of, in, of whether Ebola will be endemic, wiser, wiser people than me have said, Ebola outbreaks end when people want them to end. And there are two dynamics at play here. A big one is the way this outbreak has been financed. There are financial disincentives for ending the outbreak. And we have to address that, and the way to address that is through radical financial transparency. We have to be accountable for all of the money flowing into this region, and we have to be able to report to communities. They, should have, they have the right to have access to know where this money is going, because what they see are big hotels filled with foreigners, what they see are big land cruisers driving at high speed through their communities, and what they don't see is the delivery of humanitarian aid. Uh, in a way that they need and deserve. May I, just, may I just follow up there? I mean, what I hear you saying is that if you follow this, this strategy, you can slowly, slowly begin to change the way that the operations are undertaken, win trust, and bring security along with you. Is that, is that, is that a fair summary of sort of your argument? And if so, are you seeing this succeed in certain localities. Can you point to places where you can say, if you take this approach, uh, security improves, engagement by the community improves, paranoia and conspiracies go away, and uh, medical services are provided. Are there cases you can point to? I, I would describe uh, our work in Ebola and in outbreaks in general as very utilitarian. So a lot of the lessons that we've learned, we do things because that's what works. For example, our, if you read our publicly available, it's on the internet, uh, viral hemorrhagic fever guideline, uh, we have a whole process in place for home-based care. It's not a new idea, it's something that we've done and we've used in many outbreaks before. And the idea is if someone doesn't want to come to our Ebola treatment center, they have a right to not come to our Ebola treatment center. And we will find a way, we will negotiate with them, with the community, with the household, with the patient for how we can still deliver them care in their home. We have to be very honest, it's not as high quality care as we could provide them in an appropriate facility. But that's an example of how over the course of many Ebola outbreaks, we've learned to respond to these issues. Uh, I've been in the unfortunate situation of giving very bad news to hundreds of families where I tell them that their loved one has died. And I explained to them, how, I proposed to them how we would like to do a funeral. We explain what they can do, what's not safe for them to do. We explain why, and at the end, it's the family's choice. 100% of the time, they agreed to a safe and secure burial because it was their choice, because they understood the reasons why, because they had a chance to ask questions, because they don't want to die. In this outbreak, we've seen communities where we have had the medical humanitarian space, where we've gone to the community and said, what do you need? What do you want? What are the questions that you have, how can we answer those questions? 
and it has worked. But where we see in a lot of the hotspots is this rush to securitization, which directly undermines our ability to build trust. You're asking the right question, but the application is a little bit different. I think that we, we gotta make sure we don't mix apples and oranges here. It's the if then uh, question. So what's the exit strategy in Yemen right now? What's the exit strategy in South Sudan and Sudan? When my boss asked me, when can we leave Sudan? My answer right now with the governance and the governance failure, never. Well, the never is not, <laughs> that's not the right answer. But then if you look at the humanitarian piece of it, we're there because of the human interests and the dignity of the lives that we are serving. The young eight-year-old boy that has a certificate of being cured. Yippee, okay? The young woman that said, I am cured, and now she's out communicating that to the community is a success story. Now, when you ask strategically, what is the plan so that we can resolve the security problem, it is a failure of government. Uh, I, I would say the insecurity in those two provinces where we're working right now is directly related to a failure in governance, which has driven the instability and caused the conflict and the upheaval in the community. So if that is the underlying failure of governance, the only hope we have right now is that President Jay Cicchetti and his new cabinet and something might swing. But if it doesn't, then we are not gonna be able to go in there and stabilize that region for a long time. It has to be, and you know that, it has to be driven and owned by the government itself. Do we see any, do we see any evidence uh, in Kinshasa of a serious intent to do that? To address the security issues? Because, you know, there, the, the, yeah. the far DC forces are completely discredited uh, and unwelcome. And when they get introduced into this region, it, it has the exact opposite impact of what you want. Yeah, the question is historically, the answer is no. We are where we are today. Is there any probability of change? That's the question. Yeah. yeah. And uh, we, have, we have basically three entry points here. One is on the humanitarian side. One is to continue to uh, see the Ebola uh, 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 cases go down, but for me, the biggest threat right now, while we try to resolve what's going on in the two provinces, is the regional spread. Right now, if we don't do anything else, we've got to make sure that the border countries are as prepared as possible to uh, respond if there's an encroachment. We've already seen a couple cases of that, and we've been fortunate that that response has been effective. So, uh, I, I, if the real, the real question is, what do we do if, in fact, the security environment doesn't change much? Do we, is there hope? Certainly on the humanitarian side, there's a, there's a moral commitment to try to save lives. Uh, are we going to fix the, human, the instability there that is a result of years and years of, of abandonment by the government? Certainly not overnight. So what do we do? Yeah. Jeremy. I know the answer to that question. No, <laughs> I really don't. Um, no, I, I think 
So obviously, if, if addressing or resolving the underlying insecurity is a prerequisite to success, then we will never succeed. So the, 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 the challenge is how to navigate around that without letting that mm -hmm. be um, ultimately determinative. Um, and I think it really, it, you know, it goes to what Ella talked about very eloquently, which is it has to start with building trust with the affected communities so that they see the response as um, uh, kind of the, the responders as people who respect them and are giving them choice. That is how you build trust. And I think, you know, there, there you know, during my visit, and it's a bit dated now, but, you know, there was clearly, there was clearly a perception in certain parts of the community that their response was coercive. And, um, and I don't think the response was universally coercive, uh, but there were, you know, there were incidents that became rumors, that became sort of accepted wisdom about the nature of the response um, that would really color people's perceptions of it in a negative way. And so I, the, the imperative of, of building and rebuilding and maintaining trust underpin will underpin success and I think if that can be done and it and it's it's done by not being coercive it's done by giving people choice and critically it's done by adapting to the response to the preferences of the community then I think it can succeed and I think where um, where we have seen progress in this response it has been where that trust has somehow been established um, so it's important well, you know, we, there's, there's been a lot of progress in engaging um, with the traditional modern uh, medical facilities, which is where a lot of the spread has occurred. Um, there are, you know, there are communities where, um, where the, you know, there have been a few cases and then um, it's been contained quickly. And I think, you know, MSF's experience with, so it's kind of forgotten now, but there was a flare up in Butembo early last fall that uh, was contained very quickly, and it was contained not with a heavy security footprint. It was contained basically through NGO activity, um, and and so you know that's not to say the government shouldn't have the role. The government should have a role, but I think the government needs to be cognizant in how it engages with these communities of how they view it, and it need the government needs to be cognizant of the baggage that is carried by the participation of their security forces. Um, and you know, this is not one big kind of uh, uh, monolithic outbreak. This is a lot of little, small outbreaks in a lot of different and diverse communities that are going to play differently in each one. And when you look at it that way, there have been successes. Um, it, it is moving around, and the numbers have stayed sort of you know within a certain band. But at the at the ground level in different communities, there have been flare ups and flare downs, and you, you break the down the geography of the outbreak, and there is success. So I mean that's what gives me confidence that at the end of the day, yes, there is a pathway out of this, and it's not going to become enduringly endemic. Um, but it is going to take just this difficult, arduous process of going slower to, to build trust rather than going fast to clamp down. Thank you. Uh, Tim, I had a, uh, an additional thought. We're going to move to hear from you guys. And what I, when, once we've heard from Tim, what I'd like is just put your hand up. We'll have a, a cluster of folks, four or five folks, uh, with very short, quick interventions. And please identify yourselves. And then we'll come back to our, to our speakers. But Tim, you yeah. had a thought. And I think, Jeremy, in your opening comments, you brought up the fact that people said, why are you showing up now? Because there's been uh, sickness and killings 
so why now? What's secret about Ebola? And then the other question we're getting is, what happens when Ebola's over? What are you guys gonna do? Just drop us like a hot potato and you're out of here. So part of the strategy is to look beyond Ebola. And the World Bank, certainly Ambassador Hammer and the USAID mission team are looking at specific investments where they can go in near term and look at uh, cash for work programs, some sort of, of very basic uh, uh, community projects that demonstrate a commitment to post-Ebola. How that flushes out in the long term is a function of many variables, as you know. But on this delegation, the Secretary mentioned that we're going to be here post-Ebola. And that commitment was made on the backbone of the global health security strategy and commitment that if we can't build some very, very uh, basic health system, it might not be Ebola next time. It could be malaria or cholera. They're going to be brought to their knees. So there is a commitment and a genuine effort to start looking at a, a very rudimentary development program, which has been abandoned in that area because of the insecurity over the years. So it's, it's a fabric of opportunity here moving through and then forward uh, once this uh, allows us to do that. Extremely Thanks. Important. We've got, pardon me, did you have? That's extremely important. Yeah. We've got about 25 minutes. Um, let's hear from you all back there. Please, please uh, introduce yourself. Yes, please stand up, introduce yourself, and be very succinct. My name is Pascal. Um, I have a question for you. Are you using existing resources in country? Because I believe DRC was one of the participating partner for the PEPFAR project. And I do remember Dr. Redfield worked with IHV. And this program has a very strong, what you call community-based approach, what you call community health worker, which I think we can actually use and build our capacity. Another approach is the DHS program of ICF, which I know they do a lot of demographic and health survey and train people in country with the Institute of Statistics in that country. So I think when you're talking about a central point, I believe if you look through those existing resources to the Ministry of Health, you can find what you need. So I'm asking, are we looking at existing resources and continue on building their capacity? Thank you. There was a hand right here. Hi, I'm uh, Paula Olson. I'm from International Medical Corps, and I'm currently the DRC response manager um, at, at headquarters. So um, I want to ask a question again on security. Um, so just recently, we know that uh, the Sokola One um, operation of the government to move a large military base on, into Beni has just taken place. And uh, in, the, um, uh, in, in the most recent days uh, following this, uh, you know, partners, including IMC, have seen an uptick in banditry and things like that from uh, rogue military officials. I'm just curious, especially for you, Admiral Zimmer, who has just attended and, and talked uh, with the MOH and uh, the current government, um, kind of what they're envisioning will happen and how you think this is going to continue to impact the security of partners, but also the operating environment for, um, for us to continue this response. Thank you. Down front right here, please, and over uh, along the window. 
Hi, yeah. thank you, um, Lisa Janae. Uh, Lisa Janae. Um, so it seems pretty clear that the uh, government in Kinshasa is still a bit of a question mark at best, and that's not so surprising. Um, but I'm wondering what the experiences have been working with the local or provincial governments, if they have been cooperative or uh, if they have their own plans or strategies, and if there has been any um, plans to provide direct funding to maybe local governments or provincial governments uh, to implement their own strategies or plans. Thank Thanks. you. Thank you very much. Right here. Yes. Yeah, thank you. Good morning. Um, my name is Oke Chuku Iwala of the OKE Love, Peace, and Life Foundation. Thank you for all your contributions. Um, I'm just a little bit perplexed, and forgive me for my ignorance, but given the new news of, you know, two varying versions of Ebola vaccines, um, what is perplexing me is obviously there's been a tremendous loss of life because things started before those vaccines were able to be deployed, but what stops you know, the, you know, massive, like, very emergency-oriented application of these vaccines to contain what's going on and then to prevent, you know, an outbreak of similar fashion in the future, especially just throughout the region. I know there are the conflict issues, but I don't think that can stop people from moving with the deployment of anything that looks like it has the possibility of working. Thank you. Thank you. We have one hand right, right here. We'll, we'll do a second round, I promise you. We'll be quick. Maybe we could hear. Get to you. Hi, thanks very much. Lauren with Center for Civilians in Conflict. My question in particular is for Ella. Uh, short of entirely desecuritizing the response, are there concrete asks you would have of um, WHO, the government, other actors that do move in assisted with security, um, or asks you would have of MINUSCO, um, concrete asks that would decrease the risk posed to folks like MSF who are going in based on a model of acceptance? Okay, we've got five questions. Uh, I think you've probably all taken notes. I won't repeat the, those, but um, do we wanna just go down the line here? Tim, do you wanna take a shot? And I know, Ella, there's one directed expressly to you, but some of the other questions pertain to you as well. Tim? Yeah, just These will be high-level comments, and you, we can follow up. Uh, in terms of using other resources, I would say that that is one of the go-to uh, things. Uh, I know CDC is looking at every possible asset out there in the field or the region to bring to bear from a U.S. government perspective. The FALP program, which is a successful uh, program, and the polio training program have uh, have uh, delivered many qualified folks. All of those resources are being brought to bear. I, I think you have to also understand that while we're focusing in on Ebola, there are other diseases that need attention. West Africa, we, we were asked to take all our PMI people and put them into uh, the Ebola response, which resulted in a total breakdown in malaria. And I don't know if this is true or not, but I think I heard from uh, Alonzo in WHO that more people died of malaria during the West uh, African outbreak than Ebola. So as we pull resources, it's really hydraulic. We have to be mindful of that, and I know you know that. On the security-specific uh, security uh, situation in Benny, I just I don't want to comment on that because I just don't have any reference. We're happy to follow up on that. Um, yes, local government is critical, absolutely. In fact, the, the local government and the mayors of both Benny and Butembo 
and not Benny, but Butembo and Goma met the secretary and he paid tribute to them and reaffirmed how important their engagement was. So I think that link is acknowledged. It's really a function of resources and their ability to do what they have to do. Vaccine, uh, it is a high topic. Here's the, here's the bottom line. The more vaccines we can get out there, the better. And it's better to have more than one. So that is an ongoing active uh, 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 bit of work at WHO, Gavi, and all of our uh, vaccine-producing communities. So the Merck right now is up and running. It's still an experimental vaccine. We want to get it affirmed, I mean, approved so that we can ramp up the production so that when we bring this one under control, it'll be ready in the pipeline for the next. You've heard about the J&J &J vaccine. It's still being tested. There are a lot of complications about that, a lot of debate, a lot of different interests. So uh, uh, read what Tony Fauci and NIH has put out along with WHO and CDC. It'll give you a good perspective. Uh, it far exceeds my ability to explain it to you. Can I ask you on the vaccine, on the Merck vaccine? You know, there's there's been this ongoing debate around, okay, the, the capacity to produce uh, with the speed required Merck's put, put one of its factories in Germany now dedicated to this, which is a big step. But the pacing and the volume is something that can't be, can't be changed that quickly. And so as you look at different scenarios in terms of outbreak <coughs> scenarios, there's still a, quite a bit of nervousness around whether the vaccine supply of the Merck um, vaccine will be adequate to what the demand looks like. What's your thinking on that? Yeah, I'll just say generally that's acknowledged. We understand that once we have a proven vaccine and we uh, purchase the production line itself is the, is the, uh, the issue. All I know is that HHS with Secretary Azar pushing it has already put money on the table so that we can ramp up production through the end of next year. So what that results in terms of what's committed to Gavi and what's uh, uh, committed to other uh, uh, interested parties in what is coming to the U.S. government to use uh, remains to unfold. But uh, people are, are looking at the timeline production line down to the individual quantity. So we, we are a lot more knowledgeable about that. And yes, as we are able to scale up the use of the vaccine, uh, quantity is an issue. Ella. Sorry. Uh, the question about community health workers. Uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, MSF has been working in DRC for decades. We work very closely with community health workers. Um, we've seen some issues in this outbreak with the use of community health workers because of the, the lack of transparency in the financial structuring of the outbreak. And there is a perception on the part of some members of the community that anyone who is part of La Rue Post, of the response, is tainted and not trustworthy. And so there have been issues on one hand, community health workers are working incredibly long hours. They're doing, they're being asked to do far more than any single person should be asked to do. They're not getting paid on time very often in a lot of places. And then at the same time, the community doubts their expertise. They doubt whether or not this person really is working in their best interest, particularly around issues of contact tracing. It's very difficult, it's very sensitive. So 
Yes, community health workers are very important, but I think there are some very important lessons learned. I hope that people will do some research and really delve into some of these issues to understand how we can avoid some of the problems that we've encountered in this outbreak. Uh, for And I'm happy to talk more in detail about that. Um, the question about local government, it really depends on the local government. So some local governments are, are democratically chosen. They have a huge amount of um, trust between them and, and their constituencies. They're very transparent. They're working really well. There are other local governments that do not work that well. Uh, in Butembu, one of some of the communities that I was talking to were saying, we don't even know who the governor is or the mayor, sorry. We don't even know who the mayor is. We never see him. Uh, we don't know if he cares about us or not. So it was, it was really undermining uh, the ability to build trust because they didn't actually know that much about those particular communities and Butembu didn't know as much about their leadership as they would like to. Those are specific communities. I don't want to generalize for all of Butembu, which is a lot of people, but, but those are also issues. And they would ask, why, why is this outbreak politicized? And this is a key issue. There's two things that, that kept coming back, which is this, there are political leaders making choices, and there is a securitization and armed presence and enforcement of these activities in a way that doesn't make sense for a medical response. And so some people would even say, we know Ebola is not real because we've had outbreaks before. We've had cholera, we've had measles, and there wasn't, the mayor wasn't the person making decisions, and we didn't have ambulances escorted by military police, and we didn't have funerals with a military escort, and we didn't have the fortification and militarization of health facilities in that way before. So this isn't really Ebola, this is political. That was the, the conclusion that they came to. Um, the question about vaccines and therapies, uh, this is really one of the most heartbreaking uh, aspects of this, uh, of this outbreak for a lot of us because in previous outbreaks we had the very unfortunate situation of saying to people, please come to our Ebola treatment center, we cannot promise you a cure, we, we cannot protect your family in any way other than to remove you from them and to isolate your body fluids um, from contact with any other person. It's a, a terrible message to give someone. You're in the position often of asking people to, of asking parents to trust you with their children, of asking people to believe that you're gonna take care of this person because they can't. Um, and, and now we have therapeutic treatments that two of them, which seem to be pretty close to a cure. Uh, we have two vaccines, the Merck vaccine, which is, is being used currently in DRC. Uh, I am myself uh, a Merck trial, vaccine trial participant. Um, this is great news, and yet the mortality rate in this outbreak is the same as in West Africa. These tools aren't saving lives, and they're not saving lives because of the structure of the outbreak, because people have to trust us, they have to want to be vaccinated, they have to want to come to the Ebola treatment center to get these therapies. And you don't, you don't stop an Ebola outbreak with medical tools. You stop an Ebola outbreak because the community itself wants to stop the outbreak. Um, and I can talk a lot more about the technical aspects of the vaccine after, if you're interested. Um, but we are disappointed that some of the recommendations made by the WHO SAGE Council haven't been fully implemented, and we think they really need to be, uh, and that it would go a long way. 
And then um, the specific question asks of other actors. So David Gressley has been um, focused on this for a long time. Um, in May, before he even, just before he was going uh, to DRC in his current role, he was talking already about using area security instead of armed escorts. Um, I think that is a very necessary change. Uh, I would like to see it happen. So I think uh, we need to remove the blockages that are, that are preventing that from happening. Uh, the other thing is to refocus again on the person and to make this personal choice. And when I say that you have to give people choices, yes, it means that you're taking a public health view. So you know when you go to a village and they say, we don't want you here, and you say, okay, I'm gonna back off. Can I come back tomorrow? You know some people are going to die in that village from Ebola. But if you wait and you go back the next day and you ask permission again, and if the community knows that you're not gonna force them to do something, but that it is their choice, in the end, you will save more lives and you will prevent the spread of the virus. And this should have been an easy outbreak to solve. Again, there's a disproportionate number of the cases remain within the same ethnic group. It's not jumping borders the way it did in West Africa. This should not be such a difficult uh, response. The problem is we are not responding appropriately for the community. Jeremy. I think a lot of it's been covered. I, what I would just say quickly to the vaccine question is, the, so if I understood right, you were asking why don't we just blanket this whole area with vaccines? Um, the, the short answer to that is there's a finite supply of the Merck vaccine. Um, it can be extended now potentially through fra fractional dosing, but there's a limited amount. And so because there's a limited supply, it has to be judiciously used only in areas where there are existing cases. And basically it's kind of rings around the, the places where there are existing cases, but not more widely than that. The other vaccine, the J&J &J vaccine, has a... Um, potentially, I think, more volume, but a very different application protocol. And so using J&J &J in the same place as Merck would just confuse the hell out of people. Um, and so you'd have to keep some geographic distance there. J&J uh, &J also has a much longer period, I think it's 60 days between first and second dose um, before efficacy. So, um, so there's a lot of complexity around that, but basically that's what it comes down to. Um, I think I'll just say one thing. So both the, the, the question on using existing uh, programs and capacities and the question on local government, I think, get to an essential point, which is the importance of working with and through trusted local interlocutors. And a lot of the kind of the perception of the response um, is that it is an international internationally led and Kinshasa led operation that, you know, to Ella's point, a lot of people doubt is even real. Um, and as long as it is seen as something being imposed by the internationals and by Kinshasa, it's going to be hard to gain the, the level of acceptance and trust that's needed. So working, you know, whether that's local government, whether that's existing program, you know, who, that's going to differ depending on the community that you're talking about. But identifying and working with and through and listening to those trusted local interlocutors and adapting ourselves to them, not just expecting them to adapt to us, is the way forward. Thank you. We have just a few minutes. Let's start. There's, do you still have questions? Can I add one thing? Yes, of course. Just another thing to add on the vaccine is these are not licensed vaccines. So there is still an experimental aspect to this. We know that the Merck vaccine is safe and effective from the data available. Um, 
we would really like to see it fast-tracked for licensing. And we are, as always in MSF, um, adamant that these vaccines need to be uh, made available to the affected populations and not stockpiled by other nations, and that they need to be priced in a way that's affordable uh, for the countries themselves to be able to buy. Um, thanks so much. Um, Arsh Lal, I'm with Women in Global Health. Um, Admiral Zemer made a really good point about addressing ongoing health issues um, while considering the response efforts for Ebola. Um, but are we seeing donors um, and funding considering the importance of actually integrating these response efforts into pandemic preparedness and long-term health system strengthening, um, you know, such as infrastructure or integrated health information systems, or is fragmentation continuing to, to fray efforts um, to do this, and what could be done to improve? Thank you. Everybody's got to be real quick because we're running yeah. out of time. Len? Thank you all for a terrific discussion. We've heard different concepts of what security intervention should be from community acceptance to armed escorts and peacekeepers. The question I have is mostly for Admiral Zemer. What does the strategic plan have to say about security strategy? Thank you. Right here. Um, Oliver Kwas from Social Impact Partners. Um, Ella, you specifically mentioned that you only can uh, end um, Ebola if you if people want to end um, Ebola, but they might be incentivized by the disease to continue. Who are these people and how are they incentivized? And how can we change that, ideally? <laughs> okay. Right, right back here. Um, Sam, can you give, or Mike, Mike, Michaela? Yes. Hi, my name is Janet Fleischman with the CSIS Global Health Policy Center. Thanks for a fascinating panel. One issue that you didn't touch on, Anella, maybe you want to uh, weigh in here, is the issue of women and girls. It looks like the August numbers, 56% of those infected were adult women, and there's specific issues of how pregnant women present with Ebola, and then there's the issues of how long Ebola stays in the semen in the context of sexual violence. So I wonder if, if you could address those issues. Um, so on, on the question of ongoing, uh, the comment on ongoing health issues, uh, we are, as MSF, also responding to one of the largest measles outbreaks that we've seen in DRC. Uh, 3,000 children have died at least of measles since the beginning of the year, so more than have died of Ebola. And we don't see the funding going to these other causes of death, in particular for measles. Uh, so that is a call to action for the international community, for the donors. Uh, it's not just Ebola, and it's very hard to say to someone, oh, I'm sorry, you can only have health care if you have Ebola. <laughs> it's not an appropriate response. Uh, and then um, the issue of being incentivized to continue the outbreak, again, it goes back to the lack of financial transparency. So if the, the donor community keeps saying, yes, there's money available, and there is money available for this outbreak. We're, we're not seeing that there's not enough money. We're seeing that the money isn't going to the right places. The money needs to benefit the patients. 
The money needs to benefit the communities. And, and they're not seeing it and we're not seeing it. So that's, the issue is if, if salaries at the top are very high or if there are, um, if there's a lack of transparency that allows diversion of funds away from the humanitarian aid, then why would you stop the outbreak? If you can profit from an outbreak, you will continue. And we're working in a climate where people are very adept at, at making uh, use of resources. And, and this history of the lack of transparency, the history of um, arms and mineral and timber trade, uh, this, isn't, this isn't sort of a brand new community who's never seen this before. There are a lot of state and non-state actors that are involved in this process. I mean, the former Minister of Health is now under arrest. Certainly, I would not point the finger only at him. Uh, so that, and if you're going to be a donor in this t uh, conflict world, you have to do a conflict assessment. You have to be a responsible donor. You have to understand where your funding is going and what it means when you fund certain actors. And that's, that is the basic principle of being a responsible donor, and we're not seeing that in this outbreak. Um, and then on the issue of women and girls, so the higher number, slightly higher number of women uh, affected by Ebola is primarily, in my opinion, an anthropological reality, which is that women are the ones who are cleaning up uh, body fluids. If someone vomits, they're cleaning the bathroom. They, are, they have a higher exposure because of that. Um, I don't think that it's driven by sexual violence and survivors and, and all of this. We don't know. We still really lack scientific data on the possibility for sexual transmission after Ebola. We know it's possible. But how long before someone stops being infective is, uh, is one of the big questions. Um, call to action for the scientific community. Please research this more. Uh, and, and not just for semen, but for, for all body fluids. Um, and on pregnancy and women, we have some forthcoming papers um, as MSF on uh, some of the lessons learned on this from the West African outbreak. But uh, it is, it's really important, and it's really important that clinicians have the capacity to, to treat pregnant women um, because it is different. And we, we have seen in, um, in past outbreaks the very high mortality rate of pregnant women, and there are some opportunities to reduce that mortality rate. Thanks, Stella. Jeremy. Um, I'll just say something quickly on the first question um, about integrating other health services. I think it's a clear takeaway from this response and, and you know, is an important lesson of the West Africa response as well, that an Ebola outbreak does not happen in a vacuum. And while you know, the Ebola response may come in focused like a laser vertically on Ebola, that is not how the community is looking at it. Um, and we saw real differences in the West Africa countries depending on how prominent Ebola was as a risk. So acceptance was much higher in Liberia because spread was so astronomical and to a lesser degree in Sierra Leone. In Guinea, we never saw that level of spread and so it was never the number one thing on people's minds and it made it much harder to persuade people to uh, make radical adaptations to some very basic um, elements of their, of their life and their culture in order to prevent this disease that they didn't see as a particular threat. 
So understanding what is the kind of what is the universe of health risks and social factors that is driving a you know community or a person's perception of the disease is is fundamentally important to understanding how to address it. And I think that that's something that that's a lens that probably hasn't been applied enough in this outbreak. I'm going to we're getting we're at the end of our our time here. I want to turn to. Tim Zemer to uh, respond to any of these specific points, but more broadly uh, to answer the question of like, wh what, what's the message you want us to carry out the door today? Yeah, thanks. First of all, just to thank you and CSIS for having this forum. I'm really encouraged. <clears throat> uh, the question in the back about health systems, critical. We can make a case that uh, if you don't have an adequate health system, you're going to continue to be uh, impacted by every virus that comes along. So we all sign up for that. But we have different degrees of entry point, and we're, we're in a place right now where the entry point is so low, it's almost unimaginable to put together a system that could have responded to this like we are seeing in Uganda. Let me give you an example here, not to tell a, a story on our colleagues in Rwanda, but when the preparedness uh, call went out on how much do you need for preparedness for Ebola, <clears throat> the initial figure was 16 million, okay? I don't know if that's good or bad, but as they thought about this whole no notion of ex taking this cash and opportunity to improve health systems, strengthening at large, that, that uh, estimate leaped up to over 60 million. Keep in mind, what we're trying to do here is to close down Ebola, not build the entire health system in a country at the moment. Uh, the South Sudan uh, requirements are illustrative of that as well. On security, uh, <clears throat> the security strategy is the second leg under the health response, which is the first leg, and it involves three components, political, how do we engage with the government and the, uh, the uh, normal sanctioned uh, responders, the UN, the government of, of DRC's uh, military? How do we bring the, com the political component to bear? It also <clears throat> uh, brings in the requirement to engage with the community. So there are three pillars, and I forget what the second one was. It's a component of putting together the security strategy that David Gressley is personally responsible for. Uh, <clears throat> closing remarks, let me just make some, give you some sound bites. Governance and government matters. You have a weak government, uh, you're not even getting out of the starting blocks. It's gonna be up to all of us doing things differently. Community, absolutely critical. <clears throat> and, you know, I just feed in and off of what Ella said. What focuses the community, it's the individual, and they have to be part of the solution. Challenge, if the thoroughbreds, however you categorize that, aren't able to get into the fight, what do we do? We can't throttle back. We've got to continue to use every asset that we have, <clears throat> bring it to bear to try to move forward in uh, minimizing the impact of Ebola. Um, without the vaccine, as few of those shots that are out there, without the therapeutics, as few of those that are out there, without the cash that's been invested to date, I would offer that the situation in the current outbreak would look a lot worse. 
So while we're in a very complex area for multiple different reasons, what the community, the global community has done on behalf of the people of DRC, particularly in those provinces, has kept it at this threshold. Now our challenge is, as Steve <clears throat> uh, reminded us in the opening uh, comments, what do we do from here moving forward? And I look forward to working with all of you <clears throat> to get that answered because we can't throttle back. <clears throat> this is a cause well worth doing, but it's critical when it comes to health, health security, particularly in the entire uh, region of Africa. Thank you. Um, Tim, Ella, Jeremy, um, uh, uh, your collective uh, knowledge and wisdom is just remarkable. It's kind of astound astounding. It's been wonderful to listen to each of you uh, try and walk us through how you see the situation. So thank you so much. Uh, you stepping right off a plane, Ella, you coming down from New York, Jeremy, you've just released the big study. So um, please join me in thanking them. And thank you.